Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I want to start today in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, and I typically don't like to give a whole lot of uh, explanation to a sermon, uh, but I find myself doing it more often than I, than I want to. But uh, today uh, is a little bit of a different day. You know, every now and then there's a DNA day. DNA, for me, a DNA day is a, a day where it's not, it's not just preaching. It's more of explanation and understanding. And, and when I say philosophy, I don't mean negative. I just mean like, you know, the processes that the Lord is, is teaching me and, and ways to disseminate that into the body. And I hope that that on DNA days, you don't have to call them that if you don't want, but uh, these, these are days where like, okay, now we shift a little and we go into a, uh, not a different direction, but we go in a, in a more confident direction, uh, understanding some things that maybe we didn't see before. I know that's what the Lord has been doing in me over the last couple of years and, and certainly over the last few months. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 is a, is a very compelling and convicting verse of Scripture, and I want you to hear it very, very clearly when the apostle John says, whoever says he abides in him, Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It is really difficult to misunderstand what John is telling the church. Whoever says that he abides in Jesus ought to walk the same way in which he walked. So I wanted just to pull out three very quick words out of this verse before we go on. The word abide means to remain or to find your dwelling place in. Right, So it is a, it is a permanent fixture, to, to a place to live in. So whoever says he is in Christ is actually what John is saying. Whoever claims to be of God or to love God or to be one of God's ought. That, uh, when we say we ought to do something, or if you're from eastern Kentucky, ought. I don't know if you say that in Arkansas or not, but you ought to do something. I remember I was probably in second grade, and uh, one of my friends raised his hand and asked the teacher how to spell ought. And that's uh, not funny. That's, that's reasonable. I mean, what do you know? You don't know in second grade. So ought, though, doesn't mean something that you should do. It means that you are indebted to do something. It's, it's, it's a must, right? It is a, a debt that you owe. It is a, an indebtedness. So ought to walk, and that word walk means to be completely occupied with the thought. Every thought of a person's life. It means to be regulated. It means to be able to choose controlling yourself so that you are not missing opportunities. You are completely compelled in a lifestyle, right? So it's, it means to, to tread about um, and, and to do so in a way that proves that you're able. So I wanted just to kind of translate it very literally. It would say this, whoever claims Christ is obligated to prove it by the way he orders his life. Does it look like his? It's hard to miss. 
In a very intriguing statement in John chapter 8, you'll have to look that one up. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Uh, Jesus lets us in on a, a little more of what I was talking about last week. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that, but I'm going to touch on some of it today. Jesus said, and, and again, very literally understand the order of what Jesus says. If you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then, this is an if-then statement, then you will know the truth. And we know what comes later. And the truth will set you free. Right? Now listen again. I'm going to read it again. I want you to notice the progression. If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, last week I talked a little bit about how we are a little bit upside down on this whole discipleship Christian idea where we typically use Christian as an entry point to faith. So I say yes to Jesus, therefore I am a Christian. And how, depending upon who you're talking to and where you are when you say it, Christian could mean one of three billion things. Because everybody gets to decide what they want to believe and what they want to teach and what they want to feel and how they want to experience and how they want to interpret it. And, and that's why there's all sorts of churches and even churches within themselves can't get along with what it means to, to truly be a Christian. There are some people who are Christian who don't even believe in Jesus but they just believe that if you just follow what Jesus, you know, said, or if you believe that there is a Messiah out there, follow all your ways. I've talked to a lot of these folks. So where we start as Christian, and, and you guys know that if you are Christian enough, I mean, if you are Christian long enough and hard enough and go to church enough and study enough, you know, you enter into this discipleship process where the, the, more, the more rigid you get, the more discipled you are. And yet, it, it seems to me that the way the, the Bible uses the word Christian and the way the Bible uses the word disciple, that disciple is actually the entry point. So what did John say? If you claim to be in Christ at all, you have to live the way Jesus lived. You're indebted to live and to prove it by the way you live. Here Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching... If you are a disciple, then you will know truth. Discipleship comes first. Modeling the life of Christ comes first. What Jesus is teaching is, if you will do what I do, along the way, you're going to learn some truths. And as you apply those truths to your life, you will experience freedom. But most people want to come to Jesus in that very moment and be broken from those chains. And we wonder, why hasn't God delivered me? Why do I still trip up? Why do these things keep, why are these obstacles? Why do I keep messing up? Why is this, why hasn't God fixed me? Here's why. Because we keep waiting for another moment when we'll get serious about saying yes to Jesus. Maybe at some point in my relationship with him, I'll get a little deeper. But from now, I'm satisfied by just being Christian. What does Christian mean? Well, it was a word that the world called disciples. Those people are like Jesus. 
It seems to me we've got it, we have watered it down so much that people are satisfied by not being a disciple. And I would say many people claiming Christ that are outside the people of God. I think most Christians believe if I, if I hear truth and if I believe truth, then I will start to implement that truth in some way, some of the truth along the way, and then I will eventually become a disciple. Jesus teaches that your initial yes is an all-in yes. Truth and freedom occur over time. Truth isn't something you just choose to believe. Truth is something that you experience over time of living like Jesus. Jesus discipled those around him into the knowledge of truth. You think about these first disciples, how much of the truth did they get? I mean, they're actually rebuking Jesus about the cross. Does that sound like Somebody who is a mature follower of Christ? Of course not. These guys were, woo, and Jesus is already calling them disciples. They're learning truths along the way, and they're applying truths along the way, and they're slowly becoming free. And we don't experience their true freedom until after the resurrection. Jesus recognized that there's going to be a lot of people following him that don't necessarily believe that aren't necessarily listening with the right ears. And as the Gospels make clear, there were many people who walked away from Jesus as they encountered truth. Well, that's a truth I don't want to hear. Jesus started talking about you know, what it looks like to be a disciple, and many who believed walked away. So Jesus was either a terrible disciple of people, or he really meant it when he said that we need to be discipled into truth, not expect truth to do the discipling of us. So we live then as Jesus modeled for us, learning truths along the way. I think maybe this is the primary reason why many Christians choose to walk around bound up by things of the world. Now, you may think this is just semantics, but I think it's a lot deeper than that. You know, we, when we accept Jesus, we must walk his way in every way, along the way, and receive his truth from him by his spirit we discern, and through his word that's a byproduct in our life, because our decision is already made, and there is freedom added to our lives as we implement that truth. Otherwise... I mean, and I don't want to get, I don't, I don't want to get, you know, stuck here, but sometimes I feel like when, when, when we're already Christian and Christianity just comes with praying a prayer and a check mark, I feel like sometimes we're stuck choosing each week if we will hear and believe new truths about Jesus. And, and by the time I'm convinced, by the time we know how to implement what we heard, we've already cooled off and we go back to normal. And, and so our faith becomes this, this cycle of intention, of uh, in, intending, not intention, intending, intending. I will, I will, 
Now listen, we grow as we go, not in a stop and start pattern. We don't, we don't, we don't grow in a start and stop pattern. And so I want you to remember that our relationship that brings about transformation in our life is as a re- result of our relationship with Jesus a relationship with him, not his things, not his place, sometimes not even his word. Our growth occurs as we are with him. And he teaches us in our daily doing. This isn't the place where that takes place. This takes place on Monday when we've already said yes, when we're looking for opportunities to demonstrate Jesus as we go. We do not grow by what we know. We grow by where we go. That's a little bit Dr. Seuss, but you can have it. He didn't say that I did. Matthew 28, we studied about this last week. Very important information as we learn about discipleship. Number one, God wants each one of us, and we'll talk about this a little more in a moment. God wants each one of us to make disciples. And the disciples themselves Learned by doing, not by being told. Remember, the ministry of Jesus existed not to heal, not to preach, not even to teach. But everything that Jesus did and everything Jesus said was an example to those who would follow him. He exposed them to these opportunities so that when he said go, they had already been going. They were already learning it. They had been watching him. They had been listening to him. They had been following him. Secondly, Jesus does this with us. You'll never have to obey Jesus without Jesus being present. Number three, God most often disciples us through relationships. And all relationships do not accomplish the same discipleship purpose. Everyone, everyone helps us in our discipleship journey. In the church, we are supposed to be, I feel like that's a a, a major missing ingredient in, in ours and maybe a lot of churches where we are not just to come here and rub shoulders together and enjoy company with each other. We are to come here to help each other what? Find and follow Jesus. This is the nature of our relationship. Everything else flows out of that. We are here to disciple one another. And and partnering in the world, we are to be helping people, what? Find and follow Jesus. We are to be making disciples who make disciples. And obviously, God uses lots of different contexts and differing relationships to accomplish this. In fact, his ministry bears out five, five of these relationships. Interestingly enough, we see these five in his ministry. And in the 60s, 1960s, there were uh, sociologists that put together a study about how relationships work and the different things that you get from relationships. And you know how many they discovered? Four. Jesus uses five. I'll talk, I'm going to talk about that fifth one that unfortunately psychology and sociology hasn't discovered much yet. 
But those five are public relationships. Those are hundreds. Picture Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. Picture Jesus feeding the 5,000 or Jesus feeding the 4,000. And then there's social relationships. Those are, are groups of people who have like-mindedness in groups of 70 plus. And, and the nature of the group changes with that number. So just know, you can't just say, well, 70 is a magic number. The dynamics of relationship changes as these numbers fluctuate up and down. There is personal relationships. Those are groups found between 12 and 15 persons. And then you have transparent relationships that accomplish other things that are between three and four. And the one relationship that Jesus modeled that sociology doesn't model is the divine relationship, which is one-on-one with our creator, where we hear directly from him in in an individual personal relationship. And so if you look through the Gospels and you watch Jesus interact in these different dynamics and in these relationships, he models and maneuvers you know, masterfully. Last week we looked a little bit at the public realm. The, the design of that is teaching for truth, right? It's everyone is circled around a common resource. And the goal is not relational depth. I think sometimes... Uh, 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 people try to use like what we have right here as a place to grow deeper relationally. But let me tell you, what's happening right here is not relational depth. What happens when this is over and people stand around for 30 minutes, sometimes that is relational depth. Or beforehand is relational depth. You can get to know people a little bit better, but there's people in this room that I'm sure you may not know their name. And if we try to use this space to accomplish the space of another relationship, then what eventually happens is we damage both of those areas of discipleship. When Jesus taught on the mountain or when Jesus was in the fields and he gathered crowds, he related and he taught much differently than he did when he was alone with the disciples calling them by name. The intimacy of Jesus' divine prayer life was much different than when he was reprimanding Peter, James, and John for, being, for falling asleep. In the same scene, Jesus related differently. Jesus taught that, I believe, that, that people want and need belonging. We crave belonging relationally. And, and I believe that our ultimate craving to belong is a desire to belong to him. But often we settle for some contaminated substitutes of belonging because they're easier to manufacture and they require very little work like popularity or influence or money or materialism or toxic relationships or unbiblical sexuality. But when we adopt our all-in yes to Jesus, we agree with him that every idea of belonging flows from our belonging to him. Therefore, out of my, rela- my personal relationship with Jesus, with his word, led by his spirit, then begins to be the, the pattern of how I relate in every other r- relationship. Every relationship flows out of our relationship to him. And how we learn or relate to others, we get first from him. That's why he said the first commandment is love God. Out of that love, now you know how to love others. 
which brings us to this space that I believe we have neglected unknowingly. It's this social space. When I say social, I don't mean watered down. I mean it's a place where you are known and can know. A place of relationship. It's much less than the masses and much more than personal. There's information I do not want to share in social space, which is why I say often we are not going to have open night confessional nights, open mic confession nights. There's, it's not a place for that. There is a place for that. This isn't it. But this is the place where we begin to make friends. I was told one time, our church is really friendly, but I can't find friends. And I hear that over and over. I hear people say that. It's like, I'm looking for friends. It's like, I know all of them. These are the best. You are the best people I know. It's not hard to find friends. But you know what? We're not making friends right now. I have made friends with you outside of this moment. Social space is where we, as the kingdom of God, learn to relate to each other and actually make friends. And we find like-mindedness, which today we would call affinity, things that we have in common, rallying around certain ideas or, or issues or things in our life. And I think the church, the modern church, has done a, a pretty poor job at connecting people relationally. I think Jesus was a master connector of people. It's where it is social space that a church moves from friendly to friends. And it's in this group of 70 plus is where we begin to build mission and we fall in love with each other and we link arms with one another and we go on mission together. It's where we find our identity it's a place we can't wait to get, to, to get lean back into at church. And you may sit together in your like-minded groups. Many people do that. And sometimes if you're not in one, you might call them cliques. You know what a clique is, right? Cliques only exist for those who haven't found theirs yet. I always tell people, you know, you want, yeah, we probably are a church of cliques. That's a negative term. Uh, but we would love for you to have one. In fact, we want to beg you to be in one. A click, not a click. Kingdom click. I can see the shirt now. No. But there's so much Bible study that is focused on Jesus' interaction with either the 12 or the masses. But there's very, you know, you don't have to dig very deep to see Jesus interacting with a larger group and doing ministry in that context. So you look around Jesus, and it's often Jesus and the 12. But, you know, oftentimes in that, there's a group around the group. Many of these are women. Some of them are wealthy enough to actually provide generously for this social community that Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, the first couple of verses of that chapter, there, there are significant figures who clearly played a very vital role in the mission of the, of the church. Many of the passages that we, when we, when we read the 12, there's a much larger circle of friends. In, in Mark chapter 2, it talks about, um, I believe it's Mark 2, when on a Sabbath walk with his disciples, you remember they're popping the heads off the 
wheat and eating it, and the Pharisees see them, and they're like, ah, you guys are cooking on the Sabbath. Shame on you all. Well, there's only one reason that they would know that they were doing that. They were seeing them. There was a group, not just the 12, there was a group of people that were following Jesus everywhere he went that were listening to him teach. Otherwise, they would never know what was going on. They're spotting him there. When Jesus named the core 12 disciples that we call disciples, Luke actually says in Luke chapter 6, 12 and 13, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So it doesn't take much to look to be able to see that Jesus summoned all of them and he appointed 12. There's always a larger group that Jesus is ministering within. There are lots of experiences. Like when Jesus is eating at Zacchaeus' house and the house is full and they said, oh, look, he's going in there to eat with all of those sinners. Yeah, Jesus is in there with a very large group. When he goes to Simon, the leper's house, and she comes in and she washes Jesus' feet and the, the, there's so much room. The man, when they took the roof off the top and they lowered it because there's not enough room in there. These are not thousands of people or even hundreds of people. These are large group gatherings where Jesus is ministering to people, creating a different kind of discipleship at Levi's house and many other experiences where Jesus does this this is not only a Jesus thing although I think Jesus was the master if you look at Numbers chapter 11 we learned about the 70 elders of Israel who were called by God to come alongside Moses as a leadership community these are people now that, that Moses is investing in. Exodus 24, uh, verses 9 through 11, shows us the picture of God revealing himself to the 70 of the elders along with Moses and Aaron, 72. And they saw God face to face, yet God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. So they gathered around this meal and God discipled the leaders of the community. There are lots of other areas in the Old Testament where you see these, these social gatherings coming together, the influence of Daniel with the magicians of Babylon or David and his mighty men are these larger groups that are accomplishing things that the masses couldn't accomplish, but they weren't quite as personal as these you know, private relationships. So we begin to see some things a little bit different when we come to the New Testament church, and it makes sense that we begin to see this modeled. The early church met as a, uh, this is a new word, oikos. It's a Greek word. It means a household. It means everything pertaining to a person. They're oikos. It's like my social network, my oikos. It comes out of who I am into the people that I'm in a uh, private relation, transparent relationship, personal relationship, and then a little bit larger than that. And the early church experienced an incredible amount of power. And this power came through the equipping and discipling of households, relational networks that weren't on a Sunday morning, but they were from day to day, house to house. These, uh, your personal oikos are those that you're in a daily relationship with, mutual influence. And every single person in Jesus' culture belonged to an oikos, except widows and orphans. 
they did not have an oikos, which is why Jesus and the apostles tell the early church, you better adopt those because they need to belong too. Make them a part of your oikos. And he extended out to the extended family and to the household. So your, your, your personal oikos would be your family, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, your co-workers, which actually would include slaves in the Roman culture, people that you did your household, did business with. So picture the, the caravan that travels with Abraham, his oikos. We don't use that word today, but that's still the world we live in. That's the relational framework that we live in. We call it sphere of influence. When Lydia was saved, the first Gentile convert, it says, and so was her oikos, her household. When the Philippian jailer was saved, so was his Household, his oikos. In Acts chapter 18, when Crispus was saved, so was his, his household, his oikos. In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius is saved, and so was his over and over, you begin to see this demonstration of not just a single person, but as a single person who had a single identity began to influence everybody in their household, it transformed the oikos. The way I did business was different. The way I treated my slaves was different. The way I relate to my wife is different. The way I raise my kids is different. The way I make friends is different. Everything about my life is different. And you know who I used to be. I'm not that anymore. And everybody in that sphere goes, what is going on? I want some of that. I think we've neglected it. Listen, and I don't mean, I, I recognize what I'm about to say. We mess up when our goal is to get people to church. We need to be influencing our oikos. The church didn't grow because it came to a building. To be quite honest, that's when it begins to diminish. Where the church has its greatest power is when it's out there operating in households. Like-mindedness. Kingdom relationships. You actually begin to see this explosion of the kingdom happen through the mission and the service of, of a person's oikos. Households having gospel influence on other households. And these households come together. You know, you might get five or six different households that come together and they encourage each other and they share with each other and they nurture each other and they pray together and they motivate each other to keep on digging. Life change doesn't happen from a center stage through social relationships. A center stage provides clarity, inspiration, unity, motivation, but disciple-making begins in a person's social networking, their oikos. The first church expanded the meaning from the Roman understanding of oikos, and they said, no, 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 not blood relationships, but Jesus' blood relationships. And all of a sudden, the New Testament writers start calling the household of God, the household of faith, the oikos of Jesus Christ. And we relate together. We have all things in common, and we share together. 
We get to know each other. We know each other's names. We know each other's burdens. We cry together. We rejoice together. Well, we can't with this many people. But we can certainly find relationships in this. There is a desperate need for the hundreds. But I'm afraid we've neglected the oikoses within that. We've made this the goal, attending this the goal, when this should be the dessert. Maybe sometimes the vegetables. You know, for, so uh, I know you, you may not be a student of church history, but for the first 350 years, the church pretty much remained untainted, right? Uh, Rome stepped in and kind of organized the church and really did a number on, on it. But if you go back and you look at the first 350 years, when anybody heard the word church, the first thing they thought of, they did not think of buildings and they did not think of property that didn't exist. They didn't think of church services. They thought oikos. So I did a little, I'm going to just give it to you. In the year 8040, just a few years after Jesus' resurrection, the number of Christians were somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand. That's 0.0017% of the Roman Empire. By the year 300, there were 34 million Christians in the Roman Empire. You said, well, yeah, it's great when you make it a law. No, no, this was before Constantine. This was just before Constantine when it was still illegal to call yourself a Christian. 34 million, 56% of the Roman Empire claimed Christ while it was illegal. You know how they did it? They didn't have big crusades. Influence of households, influencing other households. That's how the church has always worked, even in persecution. If you look at how Paul talks to the church at Corinth, you'll find him talking to the leaders of the different oikoses that make up the church. When you see Paul writing in Romans chapter 16 and he lists people's names, the, uh, scholars have found no fewer than five leaders of oikoses clustered together at the church of Rome. One of them is even slaves of Caesar's palace, not, not Vegas, the different Caesar's palace. So there is a definite time when Jesus mastered this delegation of 70 plus. And I want to kind of close with that and then give a couple of other closing statements and then we'll go, okay? Um, don't get excited. It's a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. I want you just to listen to when Jesus calls this group this social group of people together and how he, they, have a, they have an affinity together. They have their identity together. They have their social networking together. And he calls them to mission. 
After, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever, you, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its street and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So before we go any further, let's some of you reading here, and you probably said, uh, why, did, why did Blaine say 72 when it clearly says 70? Um, well, there's a reason for that. <clears throat> of all of the ancient manuscripts, I feel like it's important for us to kind of bear this out a little bit. Uh, all of the ancient manuscripts, half of the ancient ones say 70, and the other half, almost right down the middle, say 72. And there is no clear evidence on either side of whether it's 70 or 72. I wish that there were some great explanation of that, but there's not. You say, well, how can I trust the word at all? Well, it's really not the point of the passage. However, let me kind of add a little bit of information that may help. There is an argument that can be made for whether it's 70 or 72, and and actually I like both of those arguments. I like it. There's certain things I would, if it were 70, that's really good preaching. And if it was 72, I really think that's probably even better. Uh, But in Genesis chapter 10, I think this is the point of what Jesus is trying to to do here. In Genesis chapter 10, there's there what is called the, you know, the, the, all of the, all of the nations that flow out of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, And, and there it says that in Hebrew, with the original language of the Old Testament, there are 26 descendants of Shem. There are 30 descendants of Ham. That's 56. And if you added that 14 descendants of Japheth, that makes 70. Right? So in Genesis chapter 10, there's only 70 nations of the ancient world. That's an important, that's an important number. Right? When that gets translated from Hebrew into Greek, that number shifts to 72. That's why it depends on what manuscript the translators are using will determine whether it's 70 or 72. Now, that may not matter to you. Here's the point, okay? If you go back just to the previous chapter in Luke chapter 9, you will see something else happening here that I think is significant. 
Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. And that's also an important number. That's the number of the tribes of the nation of Israel. Remember? It makes me think that Jesus was symbolically trying to send out 12 to represent the number of government of Israel. One for each tribe. The good news that God's kingdom that we've known is coming has now come to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Listen to this in Luke chapter 9. And he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whatever they and who, uh, wherever they do not receive you, leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That's pretty good because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 representing Israel. Luke chapter 10, he sends out 70 to the nations of the Gentiles. Now, symbolically, there are still Jewish towns and cities, but I think what he is trying to accomplish here is that the gospel is expanding The gospel is expanding, especially when the parallel passage of this is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, when Jesus sends out the disciples. He tells them, Jesus, uh, these 12, Jesus sent out and instructed them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no towns of Samaritans. The, the mission was exactly the same to the 12, do not go to Gentiles. But to the 70, the gospel is expanding. And from there on, in Matthew chapter 28, by the time we get there, we begin to find that Jesus tells every disciple, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And by the time you get to the book of Revelation, there's 144,000 witnesses to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's 12, 12 thousands. It's like the gospel just continues throughout scripture to expand through these relational movements of people. I believe what Jesus is trying to imply here is that every one of us has a mandate to reach our world. Every one of us. It's not up to the church. It's up to your personal oikos to reach the world or at least the limits of your world. To have kingdom impact as you go. Jesus said, as you go. And again, he said, as you go. It's foundational. It's intentional. He also told them, I just want to list a few things that we need to be prepared as we do this to be very careful because he's sending them out as sheep among wolves and there's going to be a lot of wolves. And if wolves don't tear you apart, what wolves will make you do is go a different direction out of fear. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. Do not be afraid. Do not worry about the savages that are out there and whether or not somebody's going to receive you or whether somebody's going to be angry at you or somebody's going to bite at you. Go. We can also live by faith. Luke 10, 4 says, you can't wait till you're ready. Don't take no money bag. 
You think you're going to out-provide God? So many times we wait until we're financially ready or till we get all of our ducks in a row before we get serious. Jesus said, don't worry about all that stuff. This is about expanding the kingdom. This is about the kingdom. Don't, don't try to get all your problems solved before you go. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, don't even take two, don't even take two coats. You don't need it. He's a provider. He's a provider. Trust him. Live by faith. Number four, be focused. Somebody comes alongside you and greets you, don't even wave at them. That's not exactly what he is saying. What he does say is don't greet them. What he means is, you know what? Sometimes you're going to have a really good opportunity to just slow down and chat. Sometimes you're going to find people that they're not going to hurt you. They're going to paralyze you. And you're standing in the road and you're having good conversation when what you've been called to have is kingdom conversations. It's a big difference. There's a big difference between being friends and being kingdom. Don't get sidetracked. Don't celebrate non-essentials. Make sure you extend your blessing. Make sure that you're content. If you go into one house and somebody next door says, hey, you should come over to my house. Man, they got a nicer house. they got a bigger TV. I think I want to be friends with them. Jesus said, no, you learn to be content. The ones, that, the ones that offered you peace the first, that's the one you stay in. Because otherwise, that community out there is going to say, boy, you just keep living, living up, don't you? Just keep coming up. Taking advantage of people. Be flexible. If they feed you Brussels sprouts, eat Brussels sprouts. I learned that in Bible college. Whenever you travel, you eat whatever's put in front of you. Yeah, if you have just whatever you got to do, do it. All right. Be flexible. Listen to this. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Where's that? Where's that in the modern church? Churches like ours. When, when, did, when did he take that away from us? To be able to heal the sick. To be able to cast out demons. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things is we don't, we don't hang around demons. We don't hang around demon people. I believe we still have authority over sick. I think we sometimes still know if God wants to heal somebody or not. Sometimes we can speak healing. Sometimes we can speak peace. But I think the Spirit of God reveals to us at what time and what manner he chooses to use a person, do, do, does something through a person. And I know we have power over demons. Proclaim the kingdom. You know what they were supposed to say? Jesus said, I'm going to send you into all the villages and, and I'm coming. I'm just, I'm coming. So you go, you find a, a house of peace. And when I get there, there's already going to be an oikos ready for me. In every town I go to, there's already going to be there. So, so they go into the town and they start looking around. The kingdom of God is here. They talk to somebody at the market. Hey, the kingdom of God is here. Oh, really? I've heard about the kingdom of God in synagogue school when I used to go. And they start opening up these conversations. Well, listen, the kingdom of God is here and the king is coming. You know, and when the king came, the king was able to come. That's the same message he gives us, isn't it? To reveal that the kingdom is here and the king is coming. So this is a lot of information. But I want to inspire you today to wrestle with the Holy Spirit of how God would use your oikos to, to visual, visibly demonstrate transformation so that you can have kingdom influence 
as the kingdom continues to expand beyond yourself. But I'm telling you, if you're satisfied with living in this world, jumping from house to house and person to person and networking and not for the kingdom, you're paralyzed. Paralyzed. No effect. So I want to give you some really quick information. Uh, I've got just a couple of minutes, and you probably disagree with that. Uh, But if I could get some volunteers to hit those doors, we're going to pass out something to you real quick. Um, It's just a little bit of a of a precursor, some things that's going to be happening in September. I'm going to go ahead and start talking about it while they're being handed out. They're just for you to take a look at. Um, if you don't have one, raise your hand. Just kidding. Nobody has one yet. Go ahead and bring them on in. We're going to pass them out in here, okay, real quick. I want you to have them in your hands. So the first Wednesday of September, we're going to begin working on these top Groups, Okay, oh, great, another group. No, it's not like that at all. We're just going to model some things. So I wanted to talk to you about what Wednesday nights are going to look like. And this is why, because of this. It's something that we've been missing for a while, I think. So on Wednesday nights, we're going to be focusing on the primary relationships in everybody's oikos. Primarily, their marriage, their parenting, their, their personal relationships, and with the Word of God. And so uh, on that first Wednesday night, we're going to be focused on parents because that Wednesday night is the night that's, or the first as school is starting back, and we're going to be talking about how to help your kids find the right friends. What's the purpose of friends and how to know if you're helping your kids find the right ones? Now, whether you're starting kindergarten or your kids are starting kindergarten or whether they're starting college, believe it or not, the Scripture has the same things to say about it. So how to make sure that you're leveraging your children's friendships according to the kingdom. We're going to, I'll teach for just a little while, and then we're going to break up into like table groups where iron can sharpen iron. You can relate to one another and talk about your experiences and, uh, and, and, and uh, gain some relationships that way. And then the next week, we'll be talking about how to help your children or yourself, battle anxiety. We'll teach on that for about a half the time. And then the second half of the time, we're going to break up into table groups and talk about how does that impact your life. And if you don't want to share, you don't have to share. If you want to share, welcome home. The third week, we've learned that there's five things. I'm going to talk about only one of them right now. There's five things that if, if parents will do these, one, these five things, they will have an 80% greater a chance of keeping their kids in church once they hit college. Uh, one of those is family serving together. I won't get into all of them, but that's, that's only one of them. So the third week of the parenting sections, we will always do family serve nights, church family and also your family, your oikos, and you can invite your oikos into that, whoever they are. That's kind of the whole goal. It's something for you to invite your household into, right? Anybody that's in your, everybody can benefit from all of these things. So you say, well, I'm not married. Well, if you intend to be great, if you have been, you've certainly got a story to share because we want everybody's to, we want everybody to feel like, hey, these are my people, right? So no, no pressure. Uh, the, the next week we'll go into, I think that's October. So we're going to go into um, uh, Bible. Well, I'm going to do three weeks of Bible study. The first one will be origins of Angels, origins of demons the next week, and then how to partner with angels and avoid demons. Or can Christians actually be possessed? We'll be talking about that through those, 
those lessons. The next, the next section will be marriage. And guys, listen up. How to break the communication code. I'm going to try to teach Blue how to understand pink and vice versa. Okay, we'll do that. We'll break up into table groups. Then the next week, we're going to do a similar thing, break up into groups and try to, try to start learning from each other. Eventually, what I would like to do is to not be doing the teaching, but us be teaching each other, right? Then the next section will be like men's ministry. We'll be talking about spiritual disciplines, a, a man's prayer life, a woman's prayer life. Women will relate as a woman. Men will relate as men. Out of that is going to birth all sorts of, of ministry and relationships, now, listen, I am convinced, maybe this is why I'm so emotional today, I am convinced that God has us at this place, and he has established us as a lighthouse to Russellville and the River Valley. I don't know of anybody that, that, is, that is, I don't know, I don't want to compare. Um, I feel like we're special. I feel like God has given us a special anointing for this. Uh, and so I want to encourage you to let's, let's take full advantage of that. So no matter where you are, each Wednesday night, we're also going to start with our meal back on Wednesday nights on that first uh, uh, Wednesday of September. And, and so I just want to encourage you, let's, let's change the world. Let's turn it upside down. All right? I know that we can do it. If surely, if the Roman Empire, with no resources can grow over a 10-year period of time by 40% for 350 years, surely with the resources and the freedom we have, we can turn the world upside down in our lifetime. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for this time together, and I pray, Lord, as, as very quickly I'm winding up, I, I just pray, Lord, for every one of us. Each one of us has a personal ministry, a, a, a household that we influence. And I pray, Lord, that we would influence for your kingdom's sake, that we would proclaim the kingdom of God is here and it's near and the king is coming. I pray that by our transformed lives, we will set this city on spiritual fire, that the nations may know that you are mighty to save. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.